Desertification is a topic that keeps popping up, and I think that it's uh, important for us to understand. And I can't think of anybody better than Alejandro with Las Damas Ranch down in the Chihuahuan Desert to give us more of a look on what it is and how to overcome. Welcome to the Sewing Prosperity Podcast with host Logan Duvall. This father of four is an Arkansas successful small business owner whose world was turned upside down with the cancer diagnosis of his then five-year-old son. As Napoleon Hill famously stated, every adversity, every failure, every heartbreak carries with it the seed of an equivalent or greater benefit. Come and join us on our journey to create a blue zone community with a focus on a holistic approach to anti-cancer, regenerative farming, and strengthening local economies. All right, uh, Alejandro, thank you so much for, for joining us. You have been brought up in so many of the regenerative agriculture interviews that we've done. Uh, Judith Schwartz just uh, just gushes over you and her experience down down at your ranch. And so I wanted to, to bring you on to just share because the work you're doing is amazing. It's incredible. And I really wanted to be able to understand desertification and understand why that is important to all of us, even those of us here in Arkansas, where that may not seem like a big issue. So, uh, Bubba, if you don't care, uh, introduce yourself and, and how how you're known, and uh, let's get into desertification and what that is. Thank you, Logan. Thanks for the opportunity to be with you today. Always excited to share the experiences we have had at the Chihuahuan Desert, which is where we are in the Mexican side. Uh, I'm a rancher in the uh, Chihuahua, Mexico. Uh, I happen to ranch in a desert, which it brings challenges, but also brings a lot of opportunities to learn how to green the desert. And, um, you know, uh, we have had the opportunity to travel to uh, many Western states, U.S. Western states, but also Africa and Arabia and South America and also recently Australia. And this desertification is actually taking place everywhere where we used to have former grasslands, uh, prairies or savannas, however you want to call it, steppes. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, something that is happening uh, worldwide, and I think it's affecting a lot the water cycle and the climate. So, Alejandro, what, what is desertification? What, what is that process that's happening, and what, what is causing it? Yeah, uh, one of the most ironic things is that the grazing animals uh, uncontrolled, uh, non-mimicking nature are the ones that actually has caused a lot of the certification. Uh, but not only grazing animals, but also on the cropland or farmland, we also had a lot of uh, the certification taking place. And, you know, uh, we say that nature bats last. So nature is always right. And at the end of the day, we're working for ourselves, not actually for nature. Because we need to keep in mind, Logan, that our times are, are not the same as nature's times. So we have to have that 
communication, very close communication with nature and observing what's going on. Because on a place that is being desertified, you're going to start seeing the, the first signs like more plants that are related to desertification, like cactus, uh, more thorns, more uh, poison, poison uh, weeds, all those signs that nature is telling us, you know, you're not working with me and then I'm going to start throwing at you things or you're not, you're not going to like it, but we just don't listen. Which Usually what we do is we just go and try to get rid, get rid of those plants instead of saying, okay, what is nature trying to tell me? How can I change my management instead of running and let's say grab a herbicide or something? And how can I change my management to mimic and work with nature? I mean, we, we've been, for example, in Kansas or Nebraska, not too far probably where, where you are, and places that haven't really been grazed for a while, they have more cactus than the Chihuahua Desert. Think about that. So na nature is really ready to, to take whatever we throw at it. At it. Nature is always ready. Um, that also happens to us when we're trying to teach ranchers, like being more intentional on their grazing and not a very marginal animal impact, but more intentional. And we always say the run to the ranchers, you know, the first thing you you, you're going to see is a lot of weeds. And they say, what? We don't like weeds. Well, we need to see weeds as a healers because you cannot jump from bare ground all the way through perennial based uh, grazing or perennial plants or green, uh, green uh, grasses, perennial grasses. You have to respect and follow nature's succession going from weeds and then annuals, then perennials, and then forbs, and so on. So it's a good sign if you apply good grazing practices to first start seeing weeds uh, on what used to be bare ground. When, when I was younger, we would go visit my mom's family uh, in the, the southeast corner of Arizona, so Wilcox, Cochise, um, and I remember a lot of mesquite trees, a lot of this red just dirt everywhere, the, the fire ants, uh, you know, horny toads. Uh, I remember one time being, uh, I was with a cousin, and he had me convinced that we were going to be killed by a pack of javelina. So we hid in this uh, mesquite tree for like 30 minutes. Turns out I don't think we were in any danger, but, you know, he did a good job of scaring me. Uh, but I just remember so much bare ground. Why? Why is that a problem with with desertification, and, and what's that solution that you found in turning a desert into a productive grassland? Yeah, and one of the challenges, Logan, is how we see things today, but how things used to be 100, 200, 300, 400, 500 years ago. See, we have on this area, on the U.S., we have a lot of stores, uh, uh, history, of the first priests, like the Spanish priests, that they were the ones in charge of documenting what they were, were seeing. I always remember the Dominguez Escalante expedition uh, on the 1700s, where they were trying to find a way from Santa Fe, New Mexico, all the way through California. When they reached Salt Lake City, think just about how it looks like Salt Lake City today. They, they said on the writings that what they saw, like beautiful, tall grasslands, they had never seen in the whole New Spain. So that historical or ecological perspective really tells you that those were not really 
what we know as deserts, but actually beautiful grasslands with full of life. So that's where we start, you know, like saying a leap of faith, saying if this not like, for example, back to my place in the state uh, of uh, Chihuahua, there were only tall grasses, grasses as tall as our saddle. Now we start seeing those grasses uh, popping up because we are creating the conditions to the biology of the livestock. So we create the conditions and then nature says, okay, I have this dormant seed or I have this seed somewhere else that wildlife or birds or wind or water is gonna bring here. But as long as we can create those conditions in the soil, then you will see those grasses bouncing back. Now, why it's so important? Because, well, you asked me about that bunch of bird ground, right? Is a problem, but we're always trying to tell people it's also an opportunity to grow something there. So the problem actually is that a, a bare ground usually is a com very compacted soil. So now we jump into effective rainfall. And effective rainfall is don't tell me how much rain you get, but how much rain you can infiltrate. So there was a study in Colorado, as well as the state of Chihuahua, that we are only infiltrating about 40 to 50% of the rain. Think about that. If I'm in a 10 inch, nine, 10 inch, let's say just to run numbers, 10 inch precipitation place in the Chihuahua desert, most people are only getting four inches effectively. So we are creating a lot of our own droughts. And the other thing is, is the temp temperatures, I mean, the high heat that happens on bare ground. We have compared before reaching my ranch, because it's a lot of bare ground before getting to my ranch, on let's say in the morning, summer a morning, yeah, you can actually register like 140, 150 Fahrenheit, 160 Fahrenheit on bare ground. When you jump into my ranch where there's grasslands, even an hour after the day, they go down to 75. So it's all that huge heat that we're creating on millions of acres, let's say in the Western US, that is that we are actually not only losing the effective rainfall, but we are actually losing what we call the small water cycle. Because from the rain we get, we get about 50 to 60% from the sea through hurricanes or, you know, storms. But we are responsible, Logan, to create your 40%. And we need vegetation, we need the ground cover to actually pull that rain. If we had that big heat that we created because of bare ground, the clouds are just gonna pass by. So just that extra heat from bare ground is creating essentially a microclimate that is making everything worse. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. So with with everything that you've said, uh, there's there's mm -hmm. two two things that kind of stand out that I don't think a lot of people realize is that the Chihuahuan Desert is in a few states in in the United States. So it's Texas, New Mexico. Does it go even into Arizona and, and up towards uh, Colorado? So it's, it's a sure huge Colorado. desert. Oh, it is. It is actually it's the largest desert in North America, uh, including uh, five states in Mexico and I think three states in the U.S. It's, yeah, it's a big desert. Okay, so by increasing this bare ground through tillage, overgrazing, whatever, is are you saying that there is a possibility that I mean Arkansas could even become a desert? Oh yeah, yeah, no, no doubt about it, no doubt about it. 
I was in uh, Minnesota uh, like a year and a half ago and they were experiencing a drought. So we start seeing, we will start seeing like a less rain because of the lack of uh, uh, biomass, that we're losing biomass. And um, yeah, you, you, you could potentially experience that. I mean, I have seen that in Colorado. I have seen that in uh, Kansas, in um, yeah, um, Nebraska and so on. Mm-hmm. Can you help me understand kind of the two two ways of of looking at it that that at least I have seen is one is just let nature take over like just be done like just remove everything let it go wild and then kind of the model that uh, you know Gabe and Alan and Will have used and you in we have to embrace the animal impact and utilizing livestock to make it better. Can can you compare those two and why why you feel that what you're doing is the right way? Yeah. Um, you know, we, we talk about rewilding and putting down fences and but I think the reality that we are we are seeing right now is quite different from a uh, hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, where the bison and not only the bison but uh, the antelope and the elk and even the deer they used to migrate, you know, and they, they used to do that mob, that uh, mob or animal impact that the grasslands needed. Because we need to keep in mind, look at that, the grasslands co-evolve with the grazers, the grazing animals. So there are some places, and we understand that they will fix themselves. Let's say at tropical places that they have a lot of uh, moisture, a lot of insects take, taking the role. But still, you know, they still need the animals there. In our grasslands, uh, we need the grazing animals. But sometimes rewilding is not enough because we don't have the conditions. We have so much fragmentation through fences, through roads. So we have seen that by actually mimicking nature with our livestock. And when I, I like to talk about livestock because it could be cows, it could be sheep, it could be donkeys, it could be horses. It would be better if we can do multiple multiple species of grazing animals, better than just cows or better than just sheep or so on, because we are trying to mimic nature, looking, and nature doesn't just have one grazing animal trying to fix the whole thing. So by mimicking nature, mean like by being intentional on our, on our grazing, like really truly making an animal impact, like with all the tools that the cow brings or the livestock brings, like urine, manure, saliva, the hoof action, even the breathing, the act of breathing, it actually promotes faster growth on the grasses. That way, with all those tools, plus enough rest. And when we talk about the Chihuahuan Desert, we're talking about at least one year of rest. See, one of the one of the challenges we're seeing in many of the Western states in the U.S., and other places in the world is that people are doing a good job on grazing, mimicking nature, but they go too fast into the same paddock or pasture. So they ended up just working for three or four or five or 10 grasses. While in reality, we should be working for 100, 200 different grasses. Uh, Cool season grasses, warm season grasses, uh, tall grasses, short grasses. And the only way we know up to today is to make enough animal impact combined with a long rest period. 
So yeah, we got the beautiful thing of what we do, Logan, because we also been involved in the United Nations conventions and gatherings and things like that. There's a lot of planning. The beautiful thing about what we do is there's something we can show right now that can be done. I mean, that is being done and can be done and can be, can be scaled up into many places. Alejandro, without animals, the plants just do what's called oxidation, right? So they just die mm -hmm. and they get brittle and browned. And that seems to be a major factor in the contribution to these massive wildfires that we're seeing. So because the animals aren't cleaning up this vegetation while it's still, you know, alive and it just dies and it turns into, you know, kindling, it just turns into fire uh, material so by utilizing animals, we can kind of mitigate that also, right? Okay, yeah, I think you brought a very good point, Logan. I feel that we have overprotected our forests. Like, okay, don't touch the forest, let them be, they can handle the things, right? But I think that forests really also need grasslands underneath. Why? Because now we know that the trees attract heat and the grasslands actually regulate the temperatures in the soil. There's a recent study done by, the, by NASA in California that the fires are directly correlated to the moisture in the soil. And the grasslands are the ones that are really helping us fix the water cycle in the soil. So that's why we need... So it's important what you said about, yeah, let the cow, let the livestock actually trim or actually keep those grasslands in check. But I think even more important than that, Logan, is actually to control the temperatures and to fix the water cycle through grasslands in such a way, because nowadays you have a lot of what we call uh, dry storms. Dry storms is when you get the thunders, you get the lighting, but you don't get the rain. See, I was talking to uh, an old timer in uh, that was in Wyoming, because you know we were assisting some um, ran younger ranchers, probably they were the the grandsons of this guy, and he was sitting on a chair, and I asked him, you know, I said, what do you used to do when you had lighting on that forest that you have? You know what he said? Nothing. I just stay in my chair, because then after the lighting. We got the rains. That's what we're lacking, Logan. We don't have, we got the lighting, but we don't have the rains because we are having dry storms because of the lack of most moisture in the soil, because of the lack of healthy grasslands, because of the lack of livestock grazing properly those forests. So what is, what is a landowner, uh, whether it's a rancher or just a, you know, a farmer, what do we do to get more water on the land are there any sort of like construction techniques that we can employ alongside of uh raising animals and managing them in in this context yeah well we haven't really used any mechanical uh chemical or uh fire to restore or regenerate the grasslands we only use the biology because we understand that what is what this the soil is lacking is biology like life. So we need to think about the other herd that we have, and we call it the micro herd. The micro herd is the microbiology, 
Because you know, sometimes, Logan, we think that, okay, we need to open up this oil. Okay, let's rip, let's rip this oil. Let's rip with this oil mechanically. Let's do imprinting, let's do something else, like a roller or something. But yeah, that has some effect short term, but long term, mid long term, is actually compacted the soil. So how we regen ranchers and compact this soil, how we loosen this soil, is through microbiology through the mycorrhizal fungi, which creates the aggregation. And on those, in between those uh, uh, glues that create, there you create these spaces, this space in the soil that will allow the water, the rain to infiltrate and to store the water where the plants can, the plants need it. So it's actually your goal to start extending the green season to proper grazing management in such a way that you're always going to have a green plant doing photosynthesis and feeding your microherd. Because remember that the mycorrhizal fungi changes every 30 days. So if you don't have a green plant, see if you go and run across, let's say New Mexico, obviously some parts of Arizona, then you're going to see that our perennial grasses actually are behaving like annual grasses. They are so weak. They haven't really been grazed intentionally, or they probably people rotating too fast and they're overgrazing those grasses. That they actually green up during the monsoon, during the rainy season, the wet season, and then they shut down again. We don't want that. We don't want to see oxidized grasses. We want, see, if you go to a place just by looking at the colors of the grasses, you're going to see how healthy the place is. I believe you see all oxidized and you say, my God. We need more animal impact here. Nowadays, Logan, I can tell you this because I have seen a lot of places. Nowadays, the certification is caused more by the lack of grazing than by, than by overgrazing. I mean, the things have changed completely nowadays. Is We don't have enough livestock under proper grazing management to regenerate most of the ranches in the Western US and many other places in the world than saying, oh, you have just too many livestock. And that is a challenge we have with a lot of institutions where they see your ranch and your ranch is not doing well and they want you to the stock. But right now I'm running five times more cattle than my neighbors and I have much better grasslands than my neighbors. So it doesn't really have related to the number of animals you have. Is more related to how you manage those animals. I think that goes perfectly with uh, Alan Savory's point on when they reduced uh, the elephant population by like forty thousand. Things got worse uh, instead of better, and it's that it's more it's more animals being used properly than less animals. Like to go back to the the rewilding topic we discussed earlier. So what what do you say to the <laughs> You know, the, the big argument of cows are causing climate change. They are the problem. We have to get rid of cattle. We need to eat fake meat. We need to do all these things. Like Because you've lived it for decades now, the exact opposite, and you've seen you know cause and effect. What, what do you say to that? I would say that we need to eat more regen meat. That, that is different, right? Because, I mean, I understand, I'm a rancher, and I understand that we cause a lot of havoc, we cause a lot of degradation by not managing, by not mimicking nature. But also I understand that where we are, and in many places in the world, 
the, 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 the call for that land is grasslands. I mean, it's more difficult for me to actually put a defense where there's like tropical areas. It's a bit more difficult for me. I mean, it's, it's better, I, yeah, no doubt of it, it's better to have a proper grazing management. But, but, but where we are, we are really a very good fit because these were grasslands and they need grazing animals. And the easier way, actually, let me tell you, the easier way to rewild is to first put the livestock to do proper grazing and then the wildlife is going to come. I mean, in my ranch, all these deer and uh, uh, wild uh, pigs and all the birds and all the golden eagles and everything, foxes, uh, cougars, uh, everything is just, it just, the population is just thriving. It's just amazing how uh, by grazing properly, how you actually get back that rewilding that we all want as well. Something that just kind of hit me in this conversation is that the especially the northern Chihuahua Desert has a lot of impact on Arkansas because of you know the prevailing easterlies, right? So the the what's happening there comes directly over to us, just east of. I mean, that's where we are, and so it almost makes me think that what we need to do is we need to support regenerative farmers in the Chihuahua Desert to impact Arkansas positively. I totally agree with you. And let me tell you, it's more challenging nowadays because if you see the state of Chihuahua, we used to have one of the biggest forests in the world, which I call it the, the little Amazonia. Unfortunately, we don't have those antique forests because most of the wood watch has, is gone, like this huge five meter wide trees, like 20 feet meter wide trees. It just was amazing, you know, uh, the diameter. Uh, but we have the tool to restore grassland. I have seen, for example, the hurricane that just passed by the southern Chihuahua. It went all the way through Texas, all the way through the, I have seen storms, the same storm starting in Chihuahua, all the way through Maryland. Think about that, or Washington DC. It's just amazing. We're all interconnected. So a wall shouldn't, a wall shouldn't really stop us from working, uh, with each other because we are all are depending on each other. So yeah, totally agree with you. I mean, I know that if we fix the Chihuahua Desert and, 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 and we keep fixing New Mexico and Texas and so on, we will have a much pleasant uh, weather and we will have a thriving community of ranchers as well and consumers, you know? Mm -hmm. I, th I think that's just kind of been really eye-opening. That's a that's a context that I have not really thought about until you know we just dove into that, which leads me to say, w with what Gabe is doing with like the Regenify, I think that is such a big deal that we need to get behind and and see because we are so interconnected and understanding mm -hmm. the food labeling uh, and then the greenwashing is a big deal. You know, I, you talk you talk with Will Harris and he'll get fighting mad over greenwashing. Um, so, do you think that the the Regenerify uh, mission is one that uh, we can kind of spearhead towards? I think so. I think so. I mean, I'm familiar with the uh, verification process. I think it's going to bring a lot of good, you know, uh, to actually organizations, companies, uh, grocery stores. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's going to be crucial to keep this mo uh, moving. Now that you mentioned Gabe, Gabe Brown, um, 
we actually, let me tell you, we actually had the same migratory birds. The, the birds that actually nested in Gay Brown, they go and pass the winter in my ranch. And you know, the beautiful thing is that we work with a lot of uh, conservation organizations like these migratory birds, like Bird Conservancy of the Rockies, American Bird Conservancy, Audubon, and so on. And they are excited, they are excited nowadays to work with regen ranchers because I think they understand that that's the only option they have and the only option they have to restore the grasslands to protect the birds because those birds get predated. There's no food on bird ground. I mean, they get very cold, they get very hot. They don't find the good seeds. Think about just for a moment the seeds of those grasses. It will be completely different, the nutritional value of a seed of that perennial grass when it's on good fertile ground than when it's, when it's coming from a grass that is actually so weak that it's almost dying. So yeah, it's, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, we probably, most of us ranchers love our wildlife and I remember when I joined the ranch, I was wondering how can I do ranching while protecting all the species that were way, way before me. And this was the perfect solution for me because now we have a thriving community of wildlife, but also we can, we were able to increase the stocking rate. We were able to actually enjoy that uh, beauty of what is grasslands. Too neat. So Gabe's up in North Dakota, you're in Mexico, and you're sharing the same migratory birds. Uh, too, too neat. Well, on on that, it almost seems like we have a massive opportunity for those that love uh, nature and hunting to partner with regenerative agriculture. So I know you have got a, a very large ranch in there. Is that a positive or maybe even another business side that you have explored or seen with hunters and, and the use of livestock in improving hunting land? Big time, big time, Logan. Yeah, definitely, definitely. We haven't expo exploited yet um, the hunting opportunity, but it's there. I mean, definitely there's a tremendous increase, um, not even a need to put any core or something to attract because you know, you are actually distributing your water system. So there's gonna be water everywhere to begin with. And then there gonna be greener grasses greener than they used to be. So you're just creating the habitat and they'll come. I mean, unless you are really in an island that they cannot swim over, but we are in an island, but of grasslands, you know, in between a big desert, but they, they know, they know where they need to be. And actually, uh, I just spoke recently with a friend that they're working in uh, Southern Texas, where you have a lot of hunting like this uh, whitetail. And what they actually need is a proper grazing. So he is promoting proper grazing to, and just for the purpose of hunting. Yeah, it has so many benefits, just incredible. Alejandro, how do we support this mission? How, how do we, you know, because we're all consumers in one way or another, even if we are producers, how do we support this mission? I think uh, first probably go on, uh, Try to take the time, if you have the opportunity, to visit the Regen ranchers. Really, I tell people, it's not a rocket science. A good place should be beautiful when you see it, should be pleasant, uh, should be, should uh, the food coming from that should taste good because, you know, the diversity of plants give you a lot of... See, the diversity of, of plants eaten by uh, livestock, let's say cows or sheep, it actually 
correlates to the phytonutrients. The more plants that animal consumes, the more phytonutrients in your food, which is really an essential uh, nutrient, but also the flavor is given by those different plants and animal. So it's, it's something similar to like the wine industry where, you know, the terroir or the flavor. And so visit your rancher and try to support all the regen products because I think we're going even um, into the consumers. I mean, it's benefiting everybody, including, you know, the problem we have with the water availability in cities and so on. We, we keep building big levees and bigger levees and bigger levees when actually the point is to have the plants and the microherb working properly. So when it rains, the water stays where it falls. It doesn't run off. It doesn't take all this uh, soil. It doesn't take all this chemical. It doesn't take it into the rivers and so on. With this, uh, the consumer kind of focus, I think two of uh, incredible resources is Kiss the Ground, uh, the documentary, but then you were recently in a new new one, Common Ground, right, to where you have been on a circuit. Uh, how, how has that been received, and why should we all watch these documentaries? You know, it's, it's pretty amazing, Logan, because even not only consumers, but we have met ranchers in other countries, uh, farmers, where all what they saw was kiss the ground. Think about like, oh my God, this is great. And they start doing things. So there's so much of that uh, hungry for knowledge, for hope, because we all are like massively like impacted by bad news. And you can see that in younger people, you know, like, oh my God, this world's gonna end. But what we're trying to do, these documentaries are so good at educating educating not only consumers but also farmers ranchers everybody into way of doing things that will bring a lot of hope and will keep us also healthy because we do believe even in our animals that the best way for us to thrive or animals thrive is through proper nutrition and i think that also applies to us I agree wholeheartedly, my friend. I think that you are spot on, and I love the hope mission because I truly, truly believe that our regenerative farmers are are essentially frontline soldiers for whatever we're up against. Because I, if you look around, I mean, there's a lot of reasons that people are are you know dismayed, but that hope is where we have got to focus and and put our attention to, and that's why I really wanted to visit with you, my friend, because desertification is something that we all need to be familiar with. The fact that Arkansas could become a desert is, you know, that's pretty, pretty, uh, you know, bold, right? Like, and how impactful our network is. Uh, and you're, you're yes. kind of not that far away. So you, mm -hmm. to me, are a frontline soldier. I think that what you're doing is incredible. I appreciate you. And where can we send people to come learn more about Las Damas and what you've done? Uh, what, what's the best way? Yeah, you can uh, follow me, like Alejandro Carrillo, in uh, Facebook or link LinkedIn or, or even Instagram at uh, Las Damas uh, Ranch as well. And plenty also, you know, the um, YouTube University. Uh, there's plenty of information there uh, for ranchers, for farmers, and also for consumers. Yeah. 
thank you, my friend, and uh, appreciate everything that you're doing and continue doing, and we will figure out a way to just continue support. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure uh, to be with you during this time. Thank you for joining us on Sewing Prosperity. Be sure to follow along across the social media platforms, including YouTube, and be sure to go to sewingprosperity.com. Thank you for listening to the Sewing Prosperity Podcast. We hope that you have learned something new and that you are inspired to adopt regenerative practices in your community. Remember that by working together, we can create a sustainable and abundant future for ourselves and for future generations.